Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sanduck. I'm a Servite sister and the Tuesday and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee, along with Daniel Horan and Alan Cole. Dan is a Franciscan friar and director of the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Alan is faculty in residence at Baldwin Wallace University and former holder of the university's chair in faith and life. He also serves on the board of directors of the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. For our prayer this evening, I've chosen an Advent Psalm of Reconciliation by an unknown author. Let us pray. Be reconciled to a world that is different from the way you would have the world behave. Be reconciled to a way of life that is different from the one you know. Be reconciled to people and places whose cultic ways may seem bizarre. Be reconciled to the one next door whose lifestyle shocks you and challenges you to refrain from condemnation. Be reconciled to a loss of power as it passes to the other side. Be reconciled to changing rights and changing prayers to a God you no longer recognize. Be reconciled above all to yourself as opposing forces continue to clash in a climate of liberation. God can help us reach down deep into wells of reconciliation. When we are reconciled to life, someone will rearrange it. Be reconciled to that and be at peace because no one but God can change it. Amen. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. David Golomboski. David is an assistant professor of government and international affairs at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He is a former president of the International Thomas Merton Society and is co-editor of the Merton Annual. He chairs the program committee for the 2023 ITMS general meeting, which will take place at St. Mary's College. In addition to his work on Merton, he writes on politics, law, and religion, and is author of Religious Pluralism and Political Stability, Obligations in Agreement. I should mention too, that is thanks to David that our planning committee got together. Uh, David appointed us when he was chair of the ITMS and he asked us to do something interesting online and this is the result. Here now is Dr. David Golomboski speaking on People That God Has Brought Together, Thomas Merton on the Hope of Political Community Beyond Nationalism. David? Thank you, Teresa. Thank you for that introduction. And, and um, it's, a, it's a perfect opportunity to reiterate my thanks to the Tuesdays with Merton Committee, Teresa and Dan and Alan, for the work that they've done bringing this marvelous lecture series to fruition. It's, it's been a gift to the ITMS. It's been a gift to the world. Um, and, uh, and so I'm grateful on behalf of the Merton community. I'm grateful uh, on my own behalf for the invitation to be with you all tonight. Um, so thank you for that. I'll say just a, a quick prefatory note also that I am fortunate to be coming to you tonight from the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. This isn't my home, it's not my institution, um, but I'm here for a couple of days um, with 
Dan Haran doing some meetings with folks on campus in planning for our conference next summer here um, in late June 2023 in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, it's looking to be a great event. Things are coming together very nicely. And so I hope that that all those of you who are who are here tonight um, are considering um, considering making your plans for, for the ITMS general meeting that will be here next June. In my talk tonight, I want to attempt something that is not uncommon, um, but nevertheless has a, a certain element of risk attached to it. And that is, I want to bring writings of Merton's from the 1950s and the 1960s into conversation with some of the political trends that we face in the present day, with the hopes that we might draw from Merton some insights to illuminate those trends in the present day. I say that this has a certain element of risk because anytime we attempt to extend Merton's thinking to events or dynamics that are occurring more than a half century after his death, we always have to be on the lookout um, to not draw unwarranted anachronistic conclusions about what a 20, 20th century monk might say about 21st century issues. And we have to steer clear of the persistent temptation to insert one's own viewpoint into Merton's mouth uh, to say, here's what Merton would have said about this issue. And it just so happens to be the exact same thing that I would say about this issue. Those are risks, but even with those in mind, I nevertheless want to attempt to draw again from Merton insights to shine light on what I think might be the dominant political story of our time. And that is the resurgence of nationalism in politics across the globe. Some political scientists have said that we are in the midst of a global reawakening of nationalist sentiments. Most visibly, we've seen this in far-right political movements. In the United States, of course, we can look to the example of Donald Trump. But that example is only one among many in a pattern that we see across the globe. Think, for instance, of Viktor Orban in Hungary, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, Marine Le Pen in France, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. These are a handful of examples that illustrate that nationalism is having a kind of moment on the global stage today. In those far-right nationalist movements, we very often see a strong racial or ethnic component. We see that they rest on a view of national identity that's rigid and exclusive. They cast national survival as a matter of keeping certain people in and keeping other people out. For these nationalists, some people really count as the people with a capital P, and others are most definitely others. They see other countries, other peoples, as competitors to be resisted or even dominated. These nationalists are typically hostile to immigration. They're skeptical of transnational authorities like the European Union or the United Nations. They're resistant to involvement in foreign affairs. And of course, the COVID-19 pandemic that's changed so much about our world has accelerated these exclusionary nationalist movements, giving governments an excuse to harden their borders and cultivate fear of outsiders. One thing that's important to take note of in assessing this nationalist resurgence is that these nationalist movements very often have strong religious components to them. 
you can see this, for instance, in the burgeoning national conservative movement in the United States, sometimes known for short as NatCon. NatCon is an alliance of journalists, scholars, public intellectuals, whose goal is, and here I'm quoting from their website, the NatCon website, their goal is to solidify and energize conservatives around a nationalist political ideology. In one of their recent statements of principles that was signed by people including Rod Dreher, R.R. Rusty Reno of First Things Magazine, these NatCons asserted this, no nation can long endure without humility and gratitude before God, and fear of his judgment that are found in authentic religious tradition. Where a Christian majority exists, public life should be rooted in Christianity and its moral vision, which should be honored by the state and other institutions, both public and private. Now, you could contrast statements like this with those of another group you may have heard of, the integralists, who argue for a full surrender of secular institutions to religious authorities. And by that comparison, the Christian nationalists may seem mild or moderate, but there's really nothing moderate about their position. They reject the idea that government in a pluralistic society must have some independence from particular religious sects. They deny that the job of secular governments is to remain religiously neutral. Instead, they think it should be in the business of honoring some religions over others. According to the political scientists Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, two prominent experts on Christian nationalism in the United States, these nationalists tend to see themselves as, quote, representing the nation and the real Americans over and against a corrupt regime of elites who would take away their rights and plunge the nation further into decadence, end quote. The nationalists see themselves as underdogs fighting on behalf of the true American Christian identity against liberal secularists, secularists and their ideology of cosmopolitan globalism. Not coincidentally, many people who study Christian nationalism see in it a real threat to democracy. Studies show that Christian nationalist views are strongly correlated with conspiratorial thinking, anti-Semitic beliefs, assumptions that the true Americans are white conservative, natural-born citizens. A report issued by the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty and the Freedom from Religion Foundation, two groups that maybe don't spend a lot of time working closely together, identified in the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the US Capitol, pervasive symbols and rhetoric of Christian nationalism among the insurrectionists. Nationalism is on the rise and it should concern us. At the same time, there's another side to the story of nationalism. In spite of its potential for bigotry and exclusion, nationalism also has the potential to be a beneficial driving force for social solidarity. National identity and allegiance has played an important role in many struggles for freedom and independence over the past two centuries. For instance, both Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela described themselves as nationalists, fighting on behalf of their people against colonizing forces. More recently, many of us in the Western world have 
celebrated displays of Ukrainian nationalism in resistance to the Russian invasion earlier this year. Nationalism can stand for unity in the face of occupation or defiance in the face of oppression. As the political scientist Anthony Marx has written, nationalism is, quote, a collective sentiment or identity bounding and binding together those individuals who share a sense of large-scale political solidarity. Now, understanding this binding together function of nationalism, I think, is key to recognizing its appeal. In a world that is complex and divided over diverse ideologies, experiences, histories, ways of life, nationalism offers a basis for common allegiance and for mutual solidarity. Many nationalists are highly critical of overly legalistic views of political society that deny that there's anything deeper that unifies us beyond, well, we respect the same constitution and we follow the same laws. Nationalism promises something more. It suggests that there is a genuine form of political community that's possible. So here's the challenge I want to explore. Is there any possibility of creating political community outside of the racist, xenophobic, exclusionary conceptions of national identity that are increasingly pervasive in our politics? Is the alternative to nationalism simply to abandon any hope of solidarity? Or is it possible to hope realistically in some more expansive, inclusive, humanizing ideal of political community beyond nationalism. This is where I think Merton has something to offer us. Though, of course, Thomas Merton lived in a different age, he was no stranger to the dynamics of nationalism, as well as its terrible pitfalls. In the first opening line of the Seven Story Mountain, and these are words that will be familiar to many of you, Merton wrote that he came into the world on the last day of January 1915, under the sign of the water bearer in a year of great war. That great war, World War I, was one of the bloodiest outbreaks of nationalist conflict to that point in human history. Merton later entered Gethsemane in December 1941, on the eve of the United States entry into World War II, a war provoked by nationalist aggression in Europe and in Asia. As Merton's spirituality and writing evolved over the subsequent decades to encompass more overtly social and political issues, he was consistently attentive to and critical of jingoistic and exclusionary forms of nationalist ideology. So what I want to do in the rest of this presentation is to survey some of Merton's critical analysis of nationalism. What I'll do first is identify four distinct critiques of exclusionary nationalism that we can find across Merton's body of writing. The last of these, um, I, I want to draw on some texts of Merton's that are relatively lesser known, not unknown, but lesser known. And those are a couple of talks that Merton gave in Alaska in September 1968 on the trip that would ultimately conclude with his death in Thailand. 
I'll finish the talk then by highlighting some insights from those same talks that I think point the way toward alternative ways of imagining political community that might steer us clear of harmful, toxic forms of nationalism. So onto these four critiques of nationalism. The first, and this I think is the most obvious, but it's worth mentioning, is that nationalism is divisive of the human family. Not by accident, not as an unintended side effect, but quite purposefully, nationalist ideology divides humanity into smaller segments and insists that our primary allegiance must be to our particular segment above all others. The nationalists claim is that social solidarity is appropriately bounded at the level of the nation and that we must hold a level of regard for our national group that we don't extend to those who are outside of it. In this way, nationalism feeds on our predisposition to in-group bias, a preference for those who belong to my group and against those who don't. This is a well-documented feature of human psychology. But rather than resisting or even just lamenting this psychological tendency, nationalism encourages it. As the saying goes, the divisiveness of nationalism is not a bug, it's a feature. Unless people are divided, there are no nations, and there could be no nationalism. Now, Merton recognized this divisiveness as a root cause of many of the great evils of our day. Toward the end of his book, Peace in the Post-Christian Era, there's a moment where Merton says, quote, the Christian moral principles are relatively clear. And then a couple sentences later, the facts about ABC warfare are also clear enough. Now, I just want to note, this is a curious thing to say on page 160 of a book about nuclear war, that, uh, that these principles are clear. Uh, you might think that if they were so clear, they wouldn't have required so much elaboration. But nevertheless, Merton says in some way, the moral principles are straightforward. He continues, what remains to be explored by the Christian is by what are our policies of hatred and destructiveness dictated? And the answer, he says, is, quote, simply the rabid, short-sighted, irrational, and stubborn forces which tend to come to a head in nationalism. He then quotes a contemporary British historian, Christopher Dawson, who calls nationalism the most retrograde movement the world has ever seen and compares it to tribal barbarism. Now Merton affirms that nations are within their rights to celebrate their distinctive values and their ways of life. I'll come back to this theme a bit later, but Merton decries nationalistic policies as quote, divisive, destructive, and a perversion of genuine national values. Quoting Pope Pius XII, he says, they are a principle of dissolution within the community of peoples. Merton goes on then to say that Christians must orient their efforts toward world unity and not towards world division. Merton believed that peace could be achieved only by a conscious human choice to embrace the unifying principle over the instinct to divide. There's a famous Merton quote that I know many of you know. We are already one, but when we imagine that we are not, and what we have to recover is our original unity 
what we have to be is what we are. Nationalism, on the other hand, insists on imposing false constructed divisions on a human community that is fundamentally destined to be united. In a manner of speaking, nationalism denies what we are, a global human family. On to my second critique, or I should say Merton's second critique of nationalism, which is that nationalism is inherently dehumanizing. The divisive nature of nationalist ideologies almost inevitably leads to dehumanizing rhetoric about outsiders to the national collective and dehumanizing modes of treatment of those outsiders. Think, for instance, of Donald Trump's recurring hostility towards immigrants and foreigners. Think of his persistent promises to build the wall between the US and Mexico. Think of the nakedly Islamophobic Muslim ban. And even if you remember one of these many outrages of the Trump era that comes and goes, but you might think back to his stated interest in ending birthright citizenship to prevent immigrant families from joining the US body politic. If there's one consistent feature of nationalist political rhetoric and ideology, animus toward outsiders might be it. But the dehumanizing effects of nationalism are not limited only to outsiders. Even for those within the national fold, national excuse me, nationalist ideology undermines their identity as individual persons with the unique dignity of having been created as they are in the image of God. Instead, Merton points out, nationalism reduces people, persons, to members. They are first and foremost members of the nation. Merton develops this critique in an essay that appears in the book, Disputed Questions, with the title, the essay is titled Christianity and Totalitarianism. His specific target in that essay is the kind of what he calls fanaticism that finds its expression in totalitarian forms of government. But the critique he gives there really is not limited to dictators or authoritarian regimes, but also includes the nationalist ideologies that underwrite those regimes. Merton laments the way that mass movement political ideologies subsume the individual into a collective, erasing their distinctive personality. That kind of fanaticism, Merton writes, quote, refuses to look at another man as a person. It regards him only as a thing. He is either a member or he is not a member. He is either part of one's own mob or he is outside the mob. Now these lines echo Merton's rejection of nationalism's divisiveness, but they add something additional, which is to point to the dehumanizing effect of this rigidly defined group mentality, even on the individuals who participate in it and benefit from it. Merton, even in that essay, relates the reduction of persons into mere group members to the crucifixion. Christ, he writes, quote, found himself face to face with a compact fanatical group that wanted nothing of his person. They feared his disturbing uniqueness. It was necessary, as Caiaphas said, that this one man should die for the nation. 
that the individual person and above all this person should be sacrificed to the collectivity. Now we might draw a connection to one of Merton's more famous notions, the idea of a true self. This absolute nationalist prioritization of collective identity over individual personality is a denigration of each individual's true self. In fact, the true identities, which are fundamentally unique and which mark each of us apart from every other, these identities are a threat to ideologies that insist upon unity over diversity. Nationalism, Merton writes, requires, quote, an emptying of the individual, which reduces each person to a husk, a mask, a puppet, which is used and manipulated at will by the leaders of the movement. Nationalism insists on an erasure of the special dignity of each person in service of an invented collective. Third critique. Over a couple provocative pages in his provocative 1968 book, Faith and Violence, Merton specifically focuses on the religious valence of nationalism. And he objects there not exactly to the religious content of nationalist beliefs, but rather to the way that nationalist allegiance tends to displace authentic religious faith. The essay that I'm looking at most specifically in Faith and Violence was originally published as a review of the 1964 book, Varieties of Unbelief, written by the iconic scholar of religion, Martin Marty. Marty's book diagnosed what he saw as a widespread culture of unbelief, even among avowedly religious Americans. As Merton describes, Marty saw a religious vacuum in which genuine faith in God was gradually supplanted by a variety of contemporary anxieties, obsessions, cliches, in which Christ, the gospel, and Christian ethics played only an occasional supporting role. One of the specific forces that Merton and Martin Marty identify as edging out religious faith in the contemporary West was nationalism. Martin Marty writes, quote, nationalism can produce an ecstasy which few other idolatries can. Martin, excuse me, Merton and Martin Marty believe that Christianity has yielded to nationalism as the primary object of many Americans' allegiance. Merton says a Christian nationalist is one whose Christianity takes second place. In such an occurrence, for such a person, religion can no longer be a check on political ideology. It can no longer challenge political authority. He says, instead of that Christian independence, which realizes that the nation itself may come under the higher judgment of God, there arises the notion of a Christian obedience in which the faithful are urged to accept the national purpose on the justification of any and every means. They renounce all judgment and choice in order to follow secular authority blindly, since the government knows best. 
It's for this reason that I think Merton sees Marty's description of nationalism as an idolatry as warranted. The ideology of nationalism denies the unity of the human family in its fidelity to one God. Instead, it insists on an exclusive ideal of the nation as the only proper object of our allegiance. The theologian Stanley Hauerwas wrote just over a decade ago in his book titled War and the American Difference, Americans continue to maintain a stubborn belief in a God, but the God they believe in turns out to be the American God. Religious people on both the right and the left share the presumption that America is the church. Apart from the political consequences of nationalism, Merton objected to the corrosive effects that nationalism had on Christianity and genuine religious faith. Now the fourth and the final critique of nationalism. Nationalism reflects a view of humanity that is utterly lacking in grace and mercy. Merton's attentive, attentiveness to mercy is well known. Many of you are familiar with the powerful words from the end of his book, The Sign of Jonas. Have you had sight of me, Jonas, my child? Mercy within mercy within mercy. For Merton, though, the reality of divine mercy was not limited in its relevance only to individual spirituality. Rather, it also had important political significance. Now, here's where I want to say a bit about those talks that Merton gave in Alaska in 1968, as I mentioned earlier. In September of that year, during a workshop for the Sisters of the Monastery of the Precious Blood, north of Anchorage, Merton gave two talks reflecting on the German theologian Eberhard Arnold, founder of the Bruderhof Intentional Community. In those talks, Merton is focused specifically on the nature of community, both at the level most familiar to him, that of religious or monastic communities, but also at the level of political movements and societies. In one passage, Merton is reflecting on the horrors of Nazi rule in Germany. And he makes this provocative suggestion. I'll say in a moment how this fits into an essay about community. It may feel like a left turn. Merton says, I did a study of the Nazi mind at one time on Auschwitz, and this seemed to me at the heart of the problem, this absolute unforgivingness. Now, I call this a provocative suggestion because it might not have occurred to me to say that Nazis primarily failing was a lack of forgivingness. I might have said that it was hatred or cruelty or barbarism or something like that. But I think that Merton is getting in a way at the root of this world historically evil expression of nationalism by recognizing that it stems from what he calls a diabolical pessimism. As far as the Nazi is concerned, and here I quote Merton, if a man is a Jew, this is decisive. From the moment the slight flaw is discovered, finished. That's the end. He is condemned. For Hitler, 
And for anyone with that type of mentality, nothing is forgivable. Of course, to be a Jew or to be a sexual minority or a member of the Roma ethnic group or any other victim of Nazi atrocities is not something for which a person actually must be forgiven. But Merton's point is that the Nazi mentality is willing to tolerate exactly zero deviation from their originally defined sense of correctness. Any perceived flaw renders a person absolutely irredeemable, and there is nothing to be done but eradicate them. Fortunately, not all expressions of nationalism, even some of those that we might find genuinely troubling, result in such horrific mass violence as the Nazi version of German nationalism. Yet, Merton's words point us to consider how the failures of forgiveness, mercy, and grace that he identifies in Nazi ideology also appear in more moderate forms of nationalist ideology. Nationalism depends, as we've said, on hard distinctions between insiders and outsiders, and whichever criteria it chooses to hinge that distinction upon, that factor is decisive. In Merton's day, the saying was better dead than red. In our time, we might see the mercilessness of nationalism in things like the racist birther lie that insinuated that Barack Obama must not be one of us and therefore could not be a legitimate president. Or we see it in the all too prevalent callousness that many people hold toward the lives of undocumented immigrants. Or we see it in the ugly rhetoric of anti-Semitism that seems to be on the rise. These trends reflect an unwillingness to regard our neighbors as imperfect, yet fully deserving members of our community. Instead, nationalist prejudices draw arbitrary lines and they write off entirely those who are not included within them. As Christopher Pramuk writes, quote, for Merton, only mercy, a free, unexpected, and illogical gift of grace can liberate us from the self-perpetuating hatred that feeds the demons of violence. Nationalism fails this test precisely because it rejects the extension of divine mercy to those it insists on excluding. Now, in this, <clears throat> excuse me, in this fourth and final critique, I think we can see the implicit outlines of what a better, more humane form of political community might entail. So in the rest of this presentation, I want to shift from the critical mode to a more positive one. As I said earlier, toward the outset of this talk, nationalism, for all of its evil and for all of the damage it has caused and continues to cause, is not without its logic or its appeal. If we want to be a society that is more than the sum of its individual parts, if we want to feel as though we genuinely belong to a collective in some meaningful sense, if we want to cultivate a sense of social solidarity that binds us to our neighbors, how might we strive to do that with, without defaulting to corrosive nationalism? What might a political community look like if it's held together not by 
a group identity which divides us against our global neighbors, dehumanizes all those it encounters, sets national allegiance above faithfulness to God, and denies to all of us the grace upon which we all depend. If there is hope for political community beyond nationalism, where might it lie? Here, I think Merton's talks on Eberhard Arnold continue to be illuminating. And I wanna highlight some themes that emerge in those talks as signposts for how we might think of a non-nationalistic way of understanding political community. Now, again, bear in mind that Merton's remarks in those talks are not concerned exclusively or specifically with political community. Often he's speaking of monastic or religious communities. But we also know that Merton did not see monastic communities as something entirely distinct or separate from the world. The lessons learned in monastic life are not special knowledge with no relevance to lay people. Instead, and here I'll draw on a line that John Sweeney wrote in his recent book on Thomas Merton, if you quote, if you've read anything previously about Merton, you've probably heard that he was important for bringing the spiritual practice practices and wisdom teachings of the monastery to people on the outside of the monastery walls. So I tend to think that Merton's reflections on monastic community can provide some essential wisdom for how we today might think about political community. Now toward the end of one of Merton's talks in Alaska, this one titled Building Community on God's Love, Merton reflects on what he calls the real challenge of the religious life. Here's what he says. It puts us in a position where sometimes natural community is very difficult. People are sent here and there, and very often incompatible people are thrown together. Groups of people who would never have chosen to be together in an ordinary human way find themselves living together. It isn't just a question of whether you are building community with people that you naturally like. It is also a question of building community with people that God has brought together. These last words, people that God has brought together, are the ones I chose for the title of this talk. And I did so because I think they capture something essential about Merton's way of understanding community. They suggest that community is not a matter of selecting the appropriate membership and then building solidarity on the basis of some particular shared identity or definitive creed. Of course, I mean, what's interesting is that you might think that actually this is exactly what monastic community is. It's people who have chosen to be together for a very specific reason, to live the life of prayer. But Merton bursts that particular bubble. People in the monastic community, he tells us, are not necessarily on the same page. Their shared vocation does not make them automatically a community. They are not necessarily, as he says, people that you naturally like. Instead, Merton's words suggest that monastic communities are collections of individuals for whom you might struggle to identify a common thread, a common purpose, a common identity. The only complete way to explain what joins them is that God, for some inscrutable reason, has brought them together in a certain time and place. If this is true, of monastic communities than it is so much more obviously true of large-scale political communities. And this insight 
challenges the basic assumption of nationalism, which is that there is something identifiable, if I, excuse me, the assumption of nationalism is that there is something identifiable shared by the proper members of the political community, and it is that thing, their race, their language, their way of life, their religion, and so on, that truly binds them together. Nationalism implies that community is merely a matter of including the right people and excluding the wrong ones, and that love, fellow feeling, and solidarity will follow. But Merton suggests that not even small groups of Catholic monks can count on some kind of natural community arising by virtue of their objective commonalities. True political community, then, is not something that we achieve merely by properly sorting the people of the earth into the correct groups. Political community is something we achieve by finding ways to love and to care for the people with whom God has placed us. As we move toward a close, I want to name briefly some of what I think are the implications of seeing political community in this way. These aren't exactly policy proposals, but they're observations that I think Merton would have us keep in mind as we engage with our fellow citizens in striving towards some form of political community. First, we cannot presume to know what qualifies a person for inclusion in our community. If we genuinely believe that each of us, each one of us is where we are because of God's unaccountable, inexplicable action, then we must give up, surrender our arrogant certainty that we could judge who belongs and who does not. These narratives of rigidly defined national identity are myths. They're what they make up, what the political scientist Benedict Anderson called imagined communities. Genuine community, on the other hand, must be inclusive. If someone is here, it is because God has brought them here together with us. And that's all we need to know in order to know that they belong. Second, genuine community cannot exist except by grace. It doesn't matter what your context is, there are more than enough reasons to dislike or to dismiss the people around us. I live in a state where the politics are not to my liking, and even worse than that, the drivers are much too slow. I have no problem finding occasions to think uncharitable thoughts about my fellow South Dakotans. But community can only emerge on the back of a million moments of grace, forgiveness, and mercy toward those who, by all accounts, are thorns in our side. Grace is refusing to reject someone because their way of being or expressing themselves is new to you, or it disrupts your assumptions about how the world is supposed to be. God has brought this person to you. Can you let God build love between you and them? Merton knows that this is not easy. He says the following, we are and we are not communal, excuse me, let me try that again. We are and we are not communal people. It is taken for granted that we are all really sociable, but we are and we aren't. We are also weak and selfish. And there is in us this struggle between trust and mistrust, where we all believe 
and we don't believe. We trust other people and we distrust other people. To build community then requires not only that we extend grace, but that we receive it as well. When we are unsociable, we depend on the grace of others and the grace of God to let community flourish in spite of our unsociability. In the end, Merton says, community, this is a quote, community is not built by man, it is built by God. Third, communities must acknowledge the inevitability of conflict while also trusting in themselves to be capable of resolving it. Here's how Merton describes conflict in the monastic community. Quote, when we live together with people, we have strong feelings of rebellion against them. We really rise up against them. These are strong words, but acceptance of grace means not giving into pessimism about these feelings of antagonism and hostility. It means trusting that there are ways to resolve our differences and build community in spite of our disagreements. Speaking to those sisters in Alaska, Merton says, quote, you have sufficient grace to solve all of your problems in the ordinary human way. That is to deal with them, not to be without them. You have to work at it all the time, but you do have the solution. For us, we do not have to suppress, deny, or exclude conflict. Rather, we can confront it and trust that grace will enable it, excuse me, will enable us to resolve it. Now, on an interpersonal level, that might mean dialogue, relationship building. But of course, political communities face conflict at a much larger scale. At that level, trusting in the possibility of working through conflict means believing in and investing in the formal institutional structures we've created for reconciling our disagreements. Those include things like the processes of electoral democracy, independent courts of law, a constitution designed to channel our conflicts into a dynamic process of self-government for the common good. Standing up for these things is not as some of the nationalists would have it, a kind of empty legalism. Rather, it's a way of expressing our confidence that even though conflict is inevitable, it does not have to be fatal to community. The law is not merely for control, it is also for community. Even in numbers of millions or hundreds of millions, we can find ways to live together peaceably despite our differences. Fourth and finally, our communities must be local, yet also open to the world. By local, I don't necessarily mean that community can only exist at the level of small towns or neighborhoods or something like that. I mean, there's something appropriate about recognizing the distinctiveness, the specialness of certain communities in a given time and place. What makes the Abbey of Gethsemane a special community is not the same as what makes some other monastery a special community of its own kind. Similarly, what defines the political community of the United States is not the same as what defines some other national political community. To say that political communities must not allow themselves to become rigidly exclusionary in the way that nationalists hope does not mean that they cannot recognize and celebrate their distinctiveness. 
the Merton scholar Ross Labrie says that Merton, quote, contrasted nationalism that proclaimed cultural superiority with the kind of communal attachment exhibited by people who happily and gratefully shared a common history and geography. In that Alaska talk I've been drawing from, Merton says, quote, we are obligated first to the people we are living with. In other words, our local bonds are special and they have a special claim on our loyalty. However, Merton writes immediately after the line I just quoted, the obligation to the people we're living with, quote, is not our only obligation. No, we do have to love others and we want to love others and the community extends beyond our own community. At the same time that we look inward to our own cherished communities, we must also be open to those beyond their borders. We must find ways to extend love and to build community with those outsiders. This is especially pressing on the global political scale where division and disunity have disastrous consequences. There's nothing wrong with celebrating the ways of life and the values that are unique to one's own nation. But as Merton writes at the end of Peace in the Post-Christian Era, quote, the Christian is bound to work for peace by working against global dissolution and anarchy. He continues, quote, the Christian must see that his mission is not to contribute to the blind, destructive forces of annihilation, which tend to destroy civilization and mankind together. He must seek to build rather than to destroy. He must orient his efforts toward world unity and not towards world division. So to conclude, the ideology of nationalism satisfies the natural and reasonable craving that many of us have for a basis for community with our fellow citizens. It can provide a sense of solidarity, of common purpose, but it comes at the terrible costs of exclusion, division, dehumanization, and an utter failure of mercy. The forces that drive nationalist movements today are different from the ones that Merton saw in the 1960s, but not entirely. Like Merton, we face a world that feels like it is disintegrating more than it is coming together. In such a moment, we do not need to abandon our special love for our national community, but that love must be accompanied by an equally enthusiastic openness to expanding our love and widening our communities. If this is possible, it will not be because we eradicate from the human heart all tendency to close ourselves off to the world. Instead, it will be because enough of us choose to trust in the capacity of God's love to build community even where distrust and antagonism exist. Against the agents of nationalism who are so aggressively pushing God's people apart, our task, as Merton says, is to be what we are, the people that God in new and surprising and challenging ways is continuing to bring together. Thank you. Well, thank you, David. That was uh, that was a lot. It was incredibly well organized and and very thoughtful. So we've got time probably for for two or three questions, or really maybe more invitation for you to say more or say differently. <clears throat>
one of the first things I was aware of um, was as you began your speech, there was a moment at which you switched to community language and you used it with political for a while. And then we got to monastic community and really implicating religious community. And you also use the language of society, which I think, and for me at least, works on a large, much larger scale than community, which is typically a little smaller scale. And so I, I'm sitting here wondering, I, I get community on the local level. I'm really picking up on your fourth point about genuine community. But help me understand how you and or Merton imagine community on this more global scale. It's a great question. And of course, there's a, a sense in which if we're going to talk about community at the level of small monastic or religious communities, communities in your small you know, groups of neighborhood, um, close friends and, and families, uh, and apply that same language to a global community or big political communities, we must be speaking in some ways analog or, uh, analogously. I think that's the right terminology. That, that It must not mean exactly the same thing, because of course, there's no way to have with people across the world or even people across the country the same kind of relationships that you have in a small community. That said, it can be tempting to think that at this, the level of a political society, that there's no hope for anything other than, well, I can recognize their status as citizens and I have nothing in common with them, but I you know, see them as somehow having the same rights as me. And, um, and that's about all we have in common. Now, that's not nothing, that's good. But I think one of the reasons that nationalism thrives and is on the on the rebound uh, across the globe is that people do want to think about their relationships to one another on a political level as having some some richer content than that than merely i see you as a fellow citizen of the same country and so what does political community look like exactly well those uh, hard to say but i i think and i, I really think you know as a political scientists, maybe I'm inclined to say this, I think that having that trust in our political institutions to help us work together competitively, but also collaboratively to resolve our differences, our disagreements, I think that's a form of understanding that we are engaged in a common project, that we are striving sometimes antagonistically toward the common good, and that that can motivate a sense that we belong together in some way that's deeper than sort of the merely formal understanding that, well, sure, you have the same constitutional rights as I do. No, there's something, there's something deeper that can bond us, even if it's not the same as what you experience at the level of your religious community, your church community, your neighborhood community. <clears throat> yeah, I, I really like that notion of, of belonging, because I think that's what the word community is getting at is it's it's more than just a group. It's it's a group that that bonds, I think was an earlier word. Um mm -hmm. I, I'm really intrigued for for a good while in the speech, God wasn't a part of it, and then God became a bigger part of it. So I, mm -hmm. I kept wondering, where's God in all this? And and as I thought about nations and I thought about nations around the world, you know, God is either a big factor, certainly in the in the reemergence re of the nationalism in this country, God's a big deal. Um, in a place like Russia, maybe not so much. Um, so 
I'm I'm wondering whether for Merton or you, God really is necessary for this kind of political slash global religious community to to pull it off. Is God a necessary piece of it? I think for Merton, and I'll I'll happily sign on to Merton's view about this. I think yes, God is necessary in the sense that, and, and that's why I, I pulled out that lovely quote um, from Chris Pramuk's book that I'll, I'll see if I can find and um, and repeat. For Merton, only mercy, a free, unexpected, and illogical gift of grace, can liberate us from the self-perpetuating hatred that feeds the demons of violence. I think that that. For Merton, it's only in recognition of our own dependence on God's grace and our own willingness to extend that grace to others that community is possible. Now, that's not the same uh, as saying that a shared religious identity or a shared religious creed is necessary for community. Many of the, the, the nationalists I, I discussed in the opening, especially the Christian nationalists, think that the only possibility of of large-scale community is if it's rooted in some shared common religious identity. And of course, that means excluding the people who don't share in that identity or that creed. And I don't I don't think that that's Merton's view. In fact, I think that the notion that we ex depend on and extend grace to others in spite of the ways that they differ from us, the ways that they challenge our orthodoxies, the way that they disrupt our thinking, I think that that actually suggests that um, that God is necessary, but not not a shared religious label, certainly. Yeah. And of course, that invites me, and I, I I really I'm I'm glad it's as late as it is because we can't go there. Um, you know, there's there's no theology, there's bad theology, and maybe appropriate theology. I don't know. So uh, I, I'm I feel pretty confident, given where you and Merton started out. Um, bad theology won't get us there. It, I, I'd just as soon risk it with no theology as bad theology, and and there's a kind of arrogance in that statement, which is why I'm I'm as glad I'm glad as as late as it is. And so I think I'll I'll just ask you a more personal question on the way to giving it to Teresa after you answer this. I'm intrigued by all of this work, which you represent a different discipline than I do. Um, what if anything has uh, has happened for you in the process of putting this together? Has it changed you or the way you look at life, um, et cetera? What's it done to you to put the stuff together for tonight? It's a good question. So, I, you know, I've um, I've been thinking about this topic of political community and um, and the the rise of nationalism for for quite some time, um, separate from this this presentation. Um, and I, there was a, a a phase of my life where I think I looked at the idea of national identity, shared um, like the, the sense of participating in some kind of um, national solidarity, and I thought, isn't that like discredited? It's outmoded. It's we we've moved on from that. Now we understand that what bonds us is. Um, is the fact that we don't really like each other, but we have this, these laws to keep us um, from killing each other. And that's that's what we've got, uh, and, and nothing more than that. And over time, I've come to appreciate why people yearn for something more than that, why people yearn to think that they, as you say, belong to their national community um, at some level beyond well, I know that the laws keep other people from hurting me. And and so in some ways, my 
wrestling with this is a, a process of coming to appreciate the appeal of nationalism, to appreciate why people are drawn to it, while at the same time resisting the form that that striving for community takes. And so it, as I um, encountered this, uh, these essays from Merton, I was drawn to this idea of thinking about new ways to build community and genuine community across difference, across disagreement, across conflict, without, without assuming that the only way that that community can work is if we find the outsiders and keep them out. But instead, community in, 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 is about including the outsiders, including the problems, including the conflicts, and nevertheless trusting that there's some, some basis for a life together. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's a, a long journey and uh, intellectual journey for me on this. And Merton has been um, recently a really helpful resource in a way that I didn't, didn't see, um, yeah, until a, a few months ago. Well, thank you so much, David, for this very timely uh, presentation. And uh, I, I must say it was personally challenging too, the way you described mercy and um, re responding, reacting to people with whom we may disagree. Uh, so thank you very much for that, for, for the time of putting into your presentation. I want to also thank Dan Horan and the Spirituality Center at St. Mary's College for, for providing the Zoom platform and the technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. Uh, I want to thank Ellen Cope for so skillfully moderating the questions, as always, and Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube, as well as Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. And finally, I want to thank all of you for joining us today and for continuing to spread the good word about Tuesdays with Merton. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org ITMS. There you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, we invite you to consider joining, and we also welcome donations to support Tuesdays with Merton. Registration is now open for next month's webinar, when Emma McDonald will speak on Fully Human and Fully Real, Thomas Merton on Technology and Embodiment. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in the new year.